My name is Sissy Cree, and I'm an Al-Anon from Alabama. Hi, everyone. Can you hear me okay? I'll make sure y'all hear me. Uh, I, I, just a couple of things. Where, Valerie, where'd you go? Where'd she run off to? In the back. Okay. <laughs> Chicken. <laughs> well, and y'all abandoned. Y'all just go, don't you? <laughs> a couple of things I just got to say, Valerie, about, about, about what you just said. Uh, first of all, it was told to me a long time ago when I came into this program and started doing this. I would get up here and I would start to share and I would immediately burst into tears because part of it, 99% of it was nerves and then 1% of it, you know, it's just I would get up here, say my name, burst into tears. And I had a real problem with that for a long time till a, a seasoned veteran, not an old-timer, but a seasoned veteran. <laughs> they don't like being called old-timers where I am. Seasoned veteran, Alcoholics Anonymous, came up to me one time after a meeting and he said, Sissy, he said, uh, you gotta, you got to let go of this thing about crying. He said, because we all know that the more you cry, the less you pee. And that made sense to me. It's not true. <laughs> but it made sense. And so I, I come prepared tonight with my Kleenex because I know that I will, will shed a few tears up here tonight. And it's not so much about sad tears. A lot of it may be uh, tears of gratitude about what I have today. But, uh, but I know today, the more you cry, the less you pay. So you're okay. You're okay. Let me set one rumor to sleep. Uh, there's rumor going around here this weekend that a speaker you had last year, an Al-Anon speaker you had last year by the name of Bo, is my father. Well, it's true. <laughs> we don't have, it's true. That's all there is to it. Yes, that's Dad. And um, when they when the committee called me a long time ago and asked me to come out here and share. Uh, I picked up the phone and I called him because I knew he'd been out here. And I told him, I said, you know what they want? I said, they want me to come out there and tell them what really happened. <laughs> so he's in Alabama right now waiting on me to finish up so he can, he can get a phone call tonight and I can tell him what really happened. But that's the joke in our family today is, uh, is that when one of us goes and shares our story and then another one is, is invited back to speak another time, the big joke is, you know, we're going to go and tell them what really happened because apparently you couldn't handle that. So, so that's what I'm here to do tonight. No, um, I do want to thank the committee for inviting me. This is a uh, doubly special trip for me this weekend, not only to come out here and be a part of your spring fling, uh, but it's my wedding anniversary. Yesterday, Bob and I, he's on the corner over here, celebrated four years of marriage, so we were able to tie this entire anniversary into coming out here, and it's 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 been a whole lot of fun. So... It was neat to, to plan to, to get to do this. He can't stand up. Usually I make him stand up and wave at everybody, but he can't do that tonight. He had knee surgery Wednesday, and I still dragged him out here <laughs> on two airplanes across the country <laughs> on crutches just so we could uh, make this trip together. But I promise you I did not push him down those steps. <laughs> I'm past the homicidal stage. Um, but I did not push him. I did not push him on the ice. It just one of those things that happened. But y'all give him a lot of pity and a lot of compassion this weekend because he's, he's hurting. <laughs> He'll kill me when we get back to the room. Um, my name is Sissy Country. Like I said, I am from Alabama. Uh, I am from a little town, very little town, between Birmingham and Tuscaloosa called West Blockton. Has anybody here ever been to West Blockton? Y'all don't get out much, do you? 
<laughs> We're famous for one thing in West Blockton, and that's being six miles from a little a littler town uh, called Vance that produces the Mercedes-Benz M-Class, which is pretty cool to be a part of. We're neighbors to that little town, and we get to see those brand-new vehicles running all over our little country town down there. Uh, my home group uh, is the Bessemer Al-Anon family group. At Bessemer, we have uh, three meetings a week. We have a Wednesday morning meeting, a Wednesday night meeting, and a Thursday night meeting. And my home meeting at Bessemer is the Wednesday night meeting. Uh, it has been for a long time, and I hope it com continues to be that way. Uh, my Al-Anon group at Bessemer will celebrate 38 years uh, as an Al-Anon group this April, and so that's, uh, it tickles me to be a part of a group that has such history and such tradition with it. Uh, so that's a very special thing for me. I hope to be able to share with you tonight a little bit about what got me here and a lot about what keeps me here. Uh, I think we all know the pain. We can all identify with that in some sense. Uh, and I like to tell what's going on now and why I keep coming back. Uh, before I go any further, there's a couple other things. Uh, I want to thank Donna for picking us up at the airport uh, today. She had to wait two hours <laughs> longer than she expected for our flight to get in. We had, uh, when we got to Dallas, they didn't want to let us on the plane and take off because they had hydraulic problems. And I agreed with them. I didn't want to get on the plane and take off. <laughs> I told them that was fine. I'd sit there as long as I needed to. And uh, so we sat for two hours, and we finally made it out here two hours late, and bless her heart, she'd been sitting there waiting on us, and I'm so glad she didn't give up on us and think we weren't coming. Uh, and we get here to the hotel, and we just, we've got a beautiful room. Uh, and a few minutes after we were in the room, kind of relaxed in a few minutes, uh, there was a knock on the door, and there was this gentleman that carried this beautiful, it's a box. It's the only way I can describe it. And inside this box is just the best goodies you can imagine. You know, I mean, the kind of goodies that you'll eat, you know. <laughs> you go back to your room, and you'll dig around in that box tonight. And, and uh, so that, that was a tremendous uh special gift for us to get because traveling all day we had the munchies and it was nice to crack that thing open and get to work on it <laughs> my flower's not going to make it um but anyway getting getting back to uh why i'm here tonight uh before i get into too much about me i need to tell you a little bit about how i got qualified for this deal uh, i grew up in a family that uh, suffered from the disease of alcoholism my mother is the I call her my little alcoholic. She's the primary alcoholic in my life. Um, but I want to tell you from the get-go that I am, I'm not an adult child of an alcoholic. I am an adult who, as a child, had an alcoholic parent. Uh, and, I, and I am a member of Al-Anon today. Um, my mother, being an alcoholic, did not make me an Al-Anon. She simply qualified me for this program. Um, and that's all the credit I give her. You know, thanks, Mom, for qualifying me for this. Um, but in no way did did that just make me what I am today. There's a lot of work that went into, that goes into uh, having the kind of life I have today. I had to do a lot of work in Al-Anon to get here. And, um, and I say that because I want people to know that I'm not a cheerleader. Yeah, I'll stand on the sidelines and cheer in the game, but I want to be in it. I'm going to be in there working the steps. I'm going to be in there sponsoring people. I'm going to be active in this program. I'm going to hold positions. I'm going to be in service work. I'm going to do this regardless of how sick it makes me sometimes nervous-wise to get up here and do it. This is what Al-Anon is about. Uh, so I give a lot of credit to my mother for getting me here. 
Um, I came into this program when I was 13 years old. That is when my mother uh, stopped drinking. Uh, my mother's sobriety date is July the 29th, 1982. My serenity date is uh, September the 7th, 1982. That's not the date that I became serene. That's the date that the process started, that my journey began. And, uh, you know, growing up in, in my home uh, when I was a child, to me, was just as normal as my friends down the street. Uh, everybody's parents drank. Everybody had an older or a younger brother or sister. Uh, most of the, the kids in my neighborhood had two parents in the home, had a dog running around. You know, both parents worked. It was a real, it's kind of an all-American little neighborhood. Uh, but I th but looking back, the difference between me and my friends at that time was I would go home after school or in the evening to a mom that drank too much. And uh, my first, you know, real vivid memory of her, of realizing that she wasn't like my other friend's mother, was probably around the age of eight or nine. And my mother was a kitchen alcoholic. She, uh, she drank in her kitchen. She would stop on the way home from work, get what she needed at the grocery store, come home, uh, and start to drink, and somewhere during the course of fixing dinner or the early evening, she'd pass out. And wherever she passed out was pretty much where she stayed for the evening. Um, we just kind of step over her and do, do what it is we needed to do. I had an older brother who was 17 months older than myself, and then there was my dad. And, uh, of course, you know how the old saying goes, you could always look at mom and know what was wrong with her, but dad was a whole other story. You just couldn't figure out what was going on with him. He, we labeled him real quickly as just a nut. <laughs> Nobody knew. Um, you didn't know what to expect from either parent. Uh, my brother and I, as close as we were in age, uh, would swear to, to people that we met or knew that we were not related. We were total opposites. All we did was fight. All we did was argue. We could not get along. We couldn't stay in the same room together. And I know now it's because early on in my mother's drinking, we, my brother and I picked sides. And my brother was... Uh, very protective of my mother. Uh, he didn't like to see her get in trouble. He didn't like to see her suffer any consequences for her drinking. I, on the other hand, was not like that. <laughs> uh, I was the one that would run to dad and tell on her. And, uh, and this, this thing about alcoholism teaches you very early what your role is. It taught me very quickly uh, where, I, where my place in this was. Uh, you know, and it was, it was, from the beginning, it was very sick. Uh, I wouldn't leave my mother alone because I wasn't sure what, I didn't want her to get hurt. I didn't want anything bad to happen to my mother. But at the same time, I wanted to be there so that when uh, I needed that extra money or when I needed to get out of that jam I was in, I could play that game really well. Uh, if she needed me to clean my room or do whatever household chores I needed to do, then I didn't want to. I simply used her drinking to get out of that. You know, I would threaten to tell Dad. And that would win me whatever I needed for that night. And I learned very quickly how to manipulate people and how to lie and how to get out of what I had to do. Um, I learned very quickly uh, by, the, by the age I was 11 or 12 um, how to make deals to get what I needed. And if, and if you couldn't give me anything, then I really didn't have anything to do with you. And that's why my brother and I were such opposites. Uh, my mother and I switched roles very early on. She became the daughter and I became the mother. And it was mainly because I was there with her a lot. Like I said, I could use, I could threaten her uh, with her drinking, and that would pretty much win me whatever I wanted. One of the clearest memories I have growing up uh, with an alcoholic parent was that 
once she was passed out for the night, it was usually around seven thirty, eight o'clock, pretty early, the show was over, you know. And that's when me and Mike and Dad would go in the kitchen and we'd have these witch hunts. That's what I called them. And that's where we'd go through the entire kitchen and find every bottle that she had hidden in the kitchen. And uh, very proudly we would holler that we had these bottles Here's another one. Here's another one. And we'd slam them up on the counter. And then after we found them all and raided the house, we would just kind of stand back and just be very proud of ourselves for finding all of her alcohol. And we'd stand there and grin and high-five each other. And, boy, she's going to get it. You know, I'm thinking to myself, she's going to get up in the morning and she's going to see we found it. And she's going to be busted, you know. And we would, very ceremoniously, we'd hand them to my dad, and he'd pour them down the drain, and then he'd slam these empty bottles up there on the kitchen counter. And, and we'd all go to bed pretty happy that we had busted her. And uh, it was years, it was years in sobriety when we learned that we thought she was getting up every morning, coming in the kitchen, seeing these empty bottles, and thinking, oh, my God, I'm busted. They found it. And we were very confident of that. It was years into sobriety when she told us. She said, you know, guys, I would come into that kitchen every morning and see those empty bottles. And I would think to myself, oh, my God, I got up in the middle of the night and drank it all. <laughs> I mean, that's where we were. That's, we, we were to the point where we were sending messages and we were screwing that up, you know. We didn't know who was coming or going. And, uh, but at the time, if you'd asked me, Sissy, how are you, I would have said, fine. <laughs> we're just fine. We're, nothing's wrong. You know, everything's great. But we were the ones that would go in the house every night and close that big front door and pull those drapes shut and keep you out. You know, because we didn't want you to know what was going on in our house. Um, it got to the point in our family where Mother didn't want us around her and we really didn't want to be around her. You know, she didn't want us and we didn't want her. We just all kind of went our separate ways. There were hundreds of times uh, that she would come to us and say that she had decided to stop drinking and, and uh, only to to not follow through with that. Um, the low point for me, I, I do remember very clearly, was when I was uh, going from the sixth to the seventh grade. And um, we were changing schools. And in this new school, uh, we were going to have uh, lockers. And I was going from elementary to junior high. But anyway, I can remember all my friends sitting around that summer talking about how excited they were about going to this new school. and and being a part of all this new stuff. And I kept thinking to myself, you know, y'all have a good time, but I'm not going to be around for that. Because I knew that something was going on so bad in my life that I just wasn't going to be around to see any of this stuff they were talking about. I know today that I was actually thinking of suicide. I know today that I had gotten uh, so sick in this disease that I didn't know what, it, what else to do. I completely blamed myself. I thought if, that I, if I was a better daughter... Uh, if I, you know, wasn't this, but if I was this, it was she wouldn't drink as much. Uh, if I could keep my mouth shut, if I could not say the things that came out, she wouldn't do these things. And so I com uh, completely took the burden on of blaming myself that she was the way she was. Uh, very shortly before my mother decided to do something about her drinking uh, permanently, she came to me one night in the house. My dad and my brother had gone to a ball game, and I was there with my mother, kind of keeping an eye on her. And she came to me, and she said she needed to run to the store for a loaf of bread or something. And I knew why she needed to leave. I knew she needed to go, that she was out of liquor, and that she needed to go and get some. And I gave her permission to go. It's pretty much the way it was. And uh, 
the store wasn't but a couple of blocks from our from our home, and and but time passed, a lot of time passed, and she wasn't back. And I thought to myself, well, she's finally done it. She's finally she probably had that suitcase in the car. She's probably just decided to keep right on going. She's not coming back. Then I started thinking she's probably in a ditch somewhere. Then I started panicking because of all those times that I would lay in the bed and wish that something would happen or wish that they would divorce and I could live, I could pick. All these things came flooding down on me that evening. And I remember very clearly pacing the floor in the living room thinking, God, if you'll just bring her home safe, I promise. I'll never say those things to my mother again. I'll never talk to her like that again. I'll never call her those names. If you'll just bring her home safe, God, I promise I'll change. And I remember saying that out loud. And a few minutes later, the headlights turned into the driveway. And she was pulling up into the driveway, and I ran outside to greet her. And um, the next thing I knew, I was I was over at the car door, and I was literally trying to pull my mother through the, through the open window, telling her at the same time, if you ever do this to me again, I'll kill you. And I was 12 years old, 12, 13 years old. And uh, very clearly, I remember to my—I I remember thinking to myself, "Sissy, you're, this is nuts. You are insane. This is this is way out of line." And I can remember just kind of letting go of the of her shirt collar and turning around and going back in. And it didn't seem to be very long after that point that uh, that my mother came to me and my brother and my dad one night when we came in from a ball game, and she said she decided to do something about her drinking. And it, to me, it was just another, "Yeah, yeah, okay, whatever." Uh, but the next day, this treatment center that my mother had called the night before, they called her and they said, Shirley, we'd love to help you, but we need a little bit more information than your Sears credit card number. <laughs> so I knew she called them. I knew she called them. I thought, well, she's talked to somebody because she's giving them her Sears credit card number. And from that, she uh, talked to these people and came to my, my brother and my dad and I, and she said, I've decided to go to treatment. Well, that totally confused me because I thought, what is treatment? What are they going to do to her? Uh, and the only person I knew that I could ask that would tell me honestly was my brother Mike. And I went to him and I said, what is this treatment thing and what are they going to do to her? He said, well, Mike was 15 at the time. I was 13. And Mike said, well, it's kind of like taking your car in for an oil change. He said, you know, a tune-up. He said, <laughs> said she's going to go in. They're going to tune her up. Maybe give her a shot, a pill, something. She'll never drink again, and we'll live happily ever after. And I love that. I thought, why didn't she go two years ago? You know, and, and that made sense to me. And so I'm, I'm looking forward to Mom going to get her oil changed. <laughs> and the day that we're taking her is in the summer of 82, and uh, we had a pickup truck. <laughs> and in this pickup truck, my dad gets in the driver's side, my mom gets in the passenger side, and in the back of the pickup truck sat me and Mike in two Chase Lounge chairs and a cooler of Pepsi and a big, big radio right between us, taking Mom to treatment. And Redneck just doesn't fit that scene, I'm telling you. Doesn't fit it. And we are headed to treatment. And my mother's hand, she's holding her curling iron in her hand for some reason. I remember that. And it's, it takes forever to get to this treatment center. And as we're getting off the interstate, I notice this billboard. And this billboard said, last chance. We're going from a wet county into a dry county. <coughs> this billboard said, last chance. You know, pull off the interstate now. 
get what you need or whatever. And I poked my head through the cab of the truck and offered her a last chance beverage. <laughs> now I know why she was carrying that curling iron in her arm, in her hand. Because she came at me with it. She didn't want a last chance beverage. We get her up to this treatment center and literally drop her off. <laughs> it's like a drive through we dropped her off and took her suitcase out and we're leaving in this pickup truck. She's standing at this big plate glass window waving. And we're driving off. Mike and I are in the back of the truck drinking Pepsi and waving. And, I, and we was twisted. It was really a twisted scene. And uh, it was like a sad movie. You know, because we're getting further and further away and she's getting littler and littler and we're waving. And I thought, you know, problem's, problem's gone. She'll come back completely new and different and we'll live happily ever after and uh, that got me through about two weeks you know that thought uh, I still couldn't tell you where she was I told a lot of you that she died <laughs> I'd go to the ballpark and people would say Cece how's your mother we haven't seen your mother in a while who no she she died and then I would tell somebody else that she was at a Tupperware convention or something and I and then I couldn't keep straight who I told what so I had to quit going to the ballpark because <laughs> you embarrassed me by asking these questions uh, I would go home only to find that it was in the summertime. And despite my mother's best efforts at trying to teach me some things growing up, I was a little resistant. <laughs> I didn't want to learn these things, not that she didn't try. But here I am in charge, so to speak, of this house. And uh, with a dad that's working full time and a brother that gets on his motorcycle and leaves. And all of a sudden, there's dinner to cook, and there's dishes to wash, and there's things like clothes to, to clean. And I, I didn't know how to do any of this. And so uh, that was a nightmare for me. And I got real angry at my mom for being away because I had to do these things now. And uh, the very first day I came, we came home after taking a treatment, my dad looks at me and he says, what's for dinner? And I just kind of looked at him and said, well, I don't know, I don't cook. And he, he kind of looked down at me and said, get in there and learn. And so, you know, she she stayed in treatment 38 days. Mike said she eventually needed a transmission overhaul, but <laughs> that's why she stayed so long. But, you know, in that 38 days, I'm here to tell you that we didn't die eating frozen pizza and hamburger helper and instant whatever, you know, because that's about the best Mike and I could, could handle during that time. And, uh, you know, Dad didn't mind wear pink, pink socks. And things that, colors that went with other colors. He didn't seem to mind that too much. And somehow we didn't kill each other during that 38 days. Uh, we got a phone call during my mother's treatment. It's kind of an ironic thing, but we couldn't wait for her to get out of the house. We never talked to one another. We had an unwritten rule in our home, and it was, that was if you couldn't say anything nice about anybody, don't say anything at all. So we didn't talk. <laughs> and we would have silent every day of the week for weeks because we couldn't find anything nice to say about each other and all of a sudden she's gone to treatment and we can't wait to talk to her because we want to know what she what they're doing to her in treatment and she had like three minutes a week to call home and if you if you called our house the night that she was supposed to call we'd hang up on you because we want to talk to mother and find out what they were doing to her in treatment there'd be five phones in that house and we're falling over each other to try and get to the phone and talk with her but uh a couple of weeks into her treatment, they called us and extended a very nice invitation to us and asked if we'd like to come up and spend a week with our loved one. <laughs> and my first thought, I wasn't selfish a bit, my first thought was I needed a break from all this housework. 
This is killing me. It's in the middle of summer. This is killing me. I thought, sure, I'd love to go spend a week with my loved one. Get out of this house. So I, I packed my bag quick, and I packed my swimsuit and my, you know, my little video games and my quarters for the pinball machines and, you know, head up to treatment for this thing called Family Week. And uh, we get up there, and they put, they put me in this room with this lady I'd never in my life met, total stranger, no TVs, no phones, no Coke machines, no pinball machines, no gum, no nothing. And they said, welcome to Family Week. <laughs> and I named it Hell Week from the start because I didn't like it from the beginning. And they put us in things like group therapy for seven or eight hours a day and had a rule about no fraternizing with your loved with your loved ones. They didn't call them patients. They called them loved ones. And I didn't know what fraternizing meant, so I was constantly getting in trouble for breaking the rules. And, uh, and, and they started talking to us about this disease of alcoholism. And uh, what I heard during that family week was, was what I heard. It's pretty much probably not what they said. But what I heard was that I was there to learn the do's and don'ts of how to keep her from drinking. You know, I needed to know these things. I was trying to arm myself with information on how I could keep her from drinking. Um, I know today that that's not the message they sent to me. That's the message that I, that I got. Um, they did have a real live Al-Anon couple of them, actually, come in and hold meetings. My dad remembers those meetings, but I don't. I don't remember those meetings. I do still have my Family Week notebook, believe it or not, after all these years, of uh, my responses to questions and my answers to these worksheets. And, and uh, I was a sick, sick youngin' and didn't know it. I had no idea I'd been affected by this disease. Uh, we finished out the last day. I want to tell you, the last day of that Family Week had a real impact on me simply because... Uh, I heard something. We were in the last day of family therapy, and we were in this room, not not too much different from this, in a big circle. And your loved one was sitting across the circle from you. And this counselor came and stood behind me. You just know when someone's standing behind you. And he, he uh, very quietly leaned down. And he said, Cece, I want you to look over across at your mom, and I want you to look at her, and I want you to tell me one thing that you don't like about your mom. And... Uh, I started talking, and he said, whoa, 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 just, just one, just one. <laughs> and he said, now look across at your mom and tell me one thing you like about your mom. And I sat there, what seemed like an eternity, and I don't even remember what I said, but I said something. And he walked away, and I thought, okay, I passed. You know, they'll let me go home. And he walked away from me, and he, he went across the room, he stood behind her, and he said, Shirley, I want you to look across the room at your daughter. He said, I want you to tell me one thing that you don't like about your daughter. And the next thing I heard was, whoa, 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 Shirley, just, just one, just one thing. <laughs> and uh, then he said, I want you to tell me something you like about Sissy. You know, it took her a minute or two. It seemed like an eternity. And I realized at that moment that this was something more than just her, that this was going to involve all of us. And I still didn't know to what capacity, but I knew that this wasn't just about her anymore. We left. We went home from Family Week. Uh, seems like just a few days later we went to pick her up and they called us in the office one last time and they said something that I hope I never forget. They looked at my mother and they said, Shirley, if you want to stay sober, you will go to Alcoholics Anonymous. Period. They said, Bo, if you want to have any sanity in your life, you will go to Al-Anon. Period. And looked at both of them and said, and if you're going to be any kind of parents, you will get these two children into Alateen. Period. 
They didn't say we strongly suggest or we we hope that you do these things or it would be nice if you could try. They said if you want these things, this is what you will do. And let me tell you, folks, when we left that place, we were too scared not to. I thought somebody was going to come get us <laughs> if we didn't do. Because they were very serious. I know today that God led us to that treatment center because even today in our area, there's a lot of treatment centers. And, and we didn't know one from the other at that time. But we were directed to a treatment center that believed wholeheartedly in the family disease of alcoholism, that believed in treating the family. How easy it could have been for us to be directed to a treatment center that didn't. And we wouldn't have known the difference. So I know today that God was guiding us and directing us even then. He was taking care of us when we couldn't do it. So we got her home from that treatment center on a Saturday. And that very day, we went to the Bessemer Group of Alcoholics Anonymous. That I had been by a million times in my life. And saw that red brick building. And saw those two AAs up on the, the side of that building. And for years thought it was American Airlines. <laughs> And I couldn't figure out why they always were open at night. There's always cars there at night. But and they said, no, this is not American Airlines. I had a lot to learn. But we pulled up in this parking lot, and uh, before we could get out of our car, people were saying, you know, get over here in this car. And so we literally got out of one car and got in another, and off we went to the University of Alabama for what they called an anniversary. And that was my very first meeting was the Tuscaloosa Group uh, anniversary, their AA and Allen anniversary. And a couple of things I remember about that day, there were thousands of you there. And uh, you all looked like you wanted to be there. And I couldn't figure out what you had going. Uh, but, but it immediately got my attention. Across the room, uh, the room was probably four or five times the size of this room. And, and in, the, in one section of it was these long tables just like this or probably 12 or 15 of them, and there was all these teenagers hanging around them. And I asked, what were they? And someone said, those are Alateens. And I thought that meant junior alcoholics. <laughs> I had not a clue. And they said, no, 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 no. You'll be going to Alateen Tuesday night. And I thought, okay, I wasn't about to debate you. And uh, I didn't know, even know who you were, but you said, that's what I do, and that's what I thought that's what I was going to do. Uh, we spent the evening there at this anniversary, and we met a lot of you. We met a lot of AAs and a lot of Alanons and a lot of Alateens. And everybody we met seemed genuinely interested in us being there. It was unbelievable. Like they were waiting on us to get there. And, you know, they, they raffled off the University of Alabama football. I got mad because I didn't win. But second to that, this lady gets up at the podium, and she says, Hi, my name is so-and-so, and I'm an alcoholic. And I remember punching my dad in my elbow and looking over at him. And I said, isn't that neat? There's two of them in this world. <laughs> Her and my mom, I thought, how cool that we get here and hear this other alcohol. Isn't that neat? And she's a woman. <laughs> and not a clue. <laughs> not a clue. We get home that night. Uh, we get back to the, to the Bessemer group that night. And they, they tell us to get out of that car and get back in our car. And we did. And uh, we went home. And for the first time in years, we, did, we left the front door open. And we didn't close the drapes. And it was as if we wanted you to look in and see we were different, you know. And we, we went in that night, and, and we didn't turn the TV on. I remember it very clearly, very clearly. I, we didn't turn the TV on. We didn't scatter and go our own separate ways into the house. We all sat in the living room, and we talked about what we'd just been to. And we talked about how it was pretty neat.
and how this this wasn't going to be bad at all. This looked like it was going to be a lot of fun. And as a family, the four of us, for the first time in years, sat down and had a conversation. And, and Mother went in the kitchen, and she got, this is her first night home from treatment, you know, and we, she gets a half a gallon of milk and some chocolate chip cookies, and she comes in there, and we, we literally sit around the floor, and we, as a family, we made a commitment that we didn't know what you guys were on, but we wanted it, you know. <laughs> we didn't know what y'all were selling, but, but we liked it. And, and we were going to do whatever we needed to do as a family to get there. And we made that commitment. And that's pretty much what we've been doing for 17 years. Mm-hmm. Uh, the, one of the main principles in our family is, goes back to what those people told us at that treatment center. Shirley, if you're going to stay sober, you will go to Alcoholics Anonymous. You know? Bo, if you're going to have any sanity in your life, you will go to Al-Anon. And if you're going to be any kind of parents, you will get your kids into Alateen. And that's what they did. The very next Tuesday night, I went to my first Alateen meeting. Um, I went into Alateen like a sponge. I was ready for it. I didn't know I was ready for it, but I absolutely was ready for it. Uh, I could go into Alateen and I could function. I could listen. I could, I could talk. Uh, I, could, I could do these things that, it, that involved being in an Alateen meeting. I'd go back the very next night, sit in on an Al-Anon meeting. Uh, they'd go around the room, say their name, and I'd burst into tears. You know, I couldn't function there yet, but I could go into Alateen and function. And for seven years, that's what I did. I, went, I was very active in the Best Moralitine group uh, to the point that when I got to be 18 years old, they said, all right, now, Sissy, it's time for you to start making that transition into Al-Anon. And there was no question that that's what I would do. Uh, there was never a time that once I reached 18, I was going to stop doing this and <clears throat> and not do anything else. It was always that I would one day graduate into Al-Anon. And, so, and that's exactly what happened. I had people around me. I was very fortunate that when we came into this program, people didn't suggest us what to do. They told us what to do. We didn't have the sense to make a decision. <laughs> yeah? They told us what to do. They would call us on the phone and they would say, when we pull up in the driveway and honk the horn, get in the car. <laughs> and we'll be there at 6 o'clock. And they wouldn't say where we were going. But they'd pull up at 6 o'clock and honk the horn, and out we'd go. And we'd get in the car. And we may go 50 miles down here for a meeting or for a potluck or for an anniversary. Or we may drive up north to Coleman for a meeting. You know, Or we may be going down to here. We would always be going somewhere. And each time, you never had the radio on. You always had the radio off and there was talk going on, you know. And I always had these folks, and and I used to be terrified of you members of Alcoholics Anonymous because you would come up to me and you would tell me things. You would very lovingly put your arm around me. you got to remember, coming into this program, I didn't have a whole lot of discipline. I had a a foul mouth on me. I could could cuss with the best of you. I still can at times. (laughs) But... It, it, was, it wasn't so much the words that came out as the way it came out. Uh, I didn't have a lot of discipline. I didn't have a lot of structure in me, and I didn't like the word no. And, and these, these, folk, these, these guys, these older guys in Alcox Anonymous, put their arms around me, and they would say, Okay, sissy, it's 10 to 8. Here's 50 cents. Go get you a Coke. Go to the little girl's room. Come back and get you a seat at the, at the table. And I want you to sit there for the whole meeting. Now, you can sit there for an hour. There ain't nothing you got to do. But you can't sit right there for an hour. And I would. I was too scared not to. <laughs> you know. And they, and they would give me this structure very lovingly. You know. 
And these are things that, that I brought in Alan on with me today. I, I can't remember ever getting up and walking out of a meeting. You know, I can't remember not being ready once that meeting starts. That's just the way I was brought up into this thing. You know, uh, to go with the attitude of wanting to be there. Uh, to go with the idea that I'm going to get something out of this. You know. Um, and that's the way I still address my meetings in my Al-Anon program today. Uh, I, for a long time, I thought the first step in this program was getting the car. Because it's all I heard. <laughs> get in the car. Get in the car. My first Alateen sponsor, my first Alateen sponsor, she would call and she'd say, because I couldn't drive, you know. She would say, yeah, I'll be by at such and such time to get you. And I'd say, I don't want to go tonight. I just want a night off. Can I not just lay here and watch TV and do no? <laughs> and she'd pull up and honk that horn to the, you know, to the point that the neighbors would look out the window. And here I'd go, you know. And I would always benefit, you know, from from just following simple directions. And what was happening in our lives is, is is very lovingly, AA and Al-Anon was surrounding us, and Alateen was surrounding us and guiding us through this thing. And, and making decisions for us and taking care of us when we, we couldn't do that. And then we started getting getting a little better. Then we could start doing some of these things. And we started growing and we started getting better. We started getting better individually. We started getting better as a family. You know, one of the things that I remember very, a, a lot about those early years is that Mike, my brother, came to my parents one night and he said, Alateen's just not for me. He said, I'm 15 years old, 16 years old. He said, you know, I've got a motorcycle. I've got girls to chase. He said, but I just can't be at those meetings every single time. He said, but, uh, but Mom, I support you 100%. He said, anytime you get one of those chips, I'm going to be there. Anytime you all go to Florida, I'm going to be there. <laughs> and he said, but, you know, I'm just not one that's going to be at those meetings all the time. And I know today that that was okay because Mike had been – affected by the disease of alcoholism but now he was being affected by recovery he now lived in a home where people were practicing this program in their lives and he was being affected by that so he definitely benefited from this and had a program he he knew everything about it but he just wasn't one like me that was going to get active in there and go to those meetings and be be a part of uh, this was our routine for several years for the first six years in the program this is what we did meetings surrounded our life fellowship uh, going to, I grew up in big book studies. I didn't grow up my teenage years at football games. I grew up in big book studies, and I, you know, I'm okay with that today. I look, had a, had a great. Uh, I mean, looking back, shoot, I turned out healthier than a lot of the people that I grew up with simply because of what I was doing. Peer pressure was never an issue with me in high school. All the things they have to deal with today, I didn't have any of that because I was totally involved in something else that uh, gave me the strength to make those decisions in my life. Uh, and for the first six years, that's what we did. We all started getting better. Uh, we, you know, but I know today as well that bad things happen to good people, you know. And a lot of y'all know, if y'all were here last year and heard my dad, that six years into this thing called recovery, we got that knock on the door where the three policemen came to the house and told us that Mike had been killed by a drunk driver. You know, and I'm thinking, that's not supposed to happen. Here we are doing what we're supposed to do. That's not supposed to happen. You know, and once again, Al-Anon and AA and Alateen stepped right in, took over, put their arms around us, and made decisions for us that we were unable to make. 
They didn't say, read this on page such and such. They didn't say, we'll see you at a meeting. They called on the phone, and when we answered, they said, when we pull up and honk the horn, get in the car. (laughs) It's real simple. They stepped back in there, and they made these decisions for us. During that time, of course, it was was absolutely a nightmare uh, as far as the first few hours when this happened. I do remember that the very first people at the house after the policeman left, before family could even get there, was my mom and dad's sponsor. That's powerful, the middle of the night. Um, before, before your immediate family could get there and be with you physically, here comes A.A. and Al-Anon walking through the door. The Alateens camped out in my front yard for over a week, like a little wagon train out there, you know, and they would kind of like put me in the middle and, and, uh, and, and have Alateen meetings right there. You know, um, the people from from my mother's home group, the women, they would step in and they would come to the house and they would work in shifts with my mom, like 30-minute shifts, two-hour shifts, whatever anybody could do, and they would stay with her. And they would make sure that she ate and they would make sure that she bathed and they would make sure that she did the basic things that she needed to do to get through the day. And they would sit with her while she cried. And they would, uh, my mother... I can remember this. My mother turned around and looked at him one day, and she said, she asked this one little girl, she says, why are you here? And that, that lady says, my sponsor told me to be here for two hours with you. And that's the way they did things. That's the way they do things uh, back at Bessemer. Um, they would put my mother in the car and take her to a meeting. Uh, they, six or seven of them would come from, from the Bessemer group, from the Hueytown group, wherever, after the meeting and come by the house and take my mother into another room and have a meeting with her. Literally walked her through every step of this thing. Uh, the Al-Anons, I'll tell you how powerful that was, was my dad. Basically, the Al-Anons stepped in there and kept my dad from getting the shotgun and going and even in the score. Because it could have been done. It could have been done. It was thought about. <laughs> we were insane during that time. And uh, and they kept him from doing that. And how you know the, you don't find anywhere on the face of this earth that powerful that Al-Anon and Alcoholics Anonymous. You know, uh, the Alateens were the one that that, that I that they rescued me. They got me out of some of that craziness going on in the house, you know, and settled me down. Uh, following that, very very quickly, that happened in uh, May of 1988. And very soon after that, I had to make the decision whether or not to go back to college. I didn't want to go. I thought my role was to stay at home and take care of mom and dad. And it was the AAs and the Alanons that came to, came to me and said, no, sissy, we'll do that. You going back to school where you need to be. And I did. I was able to make that decision and go back down to school, which was about 40, 50 miles from their house, and live on campus and finish my college education. I did that while, while very active in Alanon. I, I was... Um, I had to be active in Al-Anon. At times, I was just going through the motion, but I didn't know what else to do. You know, we had a trial coming up. We had all kind of crazy things going on in our life, and I had to stay focused somehow. In the middle of this, the Al-Anons at Bessemer came to me, and and it was an anniversary one night, and said, Sissy, we want you to think about something. That's always scary when they come to me and say that. (laughs) I said, okay. And uh, they said, Ruth, who had been the sponsor of Best Morality since dirt, that's all I'm just, Donna Simbay since dirt, 
since Altina had been going on at Bessemer, Ruth was a sponsor, said she was now wanting to move on and do other things in Al- in Al-Anon and in service work. And would I consider, this is how they phrased it, would you consider sponsoring the Bessemer Altina group? And my answer to them was, sure, I would consider that. Well, I thought they would give me a little time to consider that. <laughs> like at least the night or something. And before the night was over, here they come again. The little, you know, powwow of them. And here they come again wanting to know if I had an answer. And so in a temporary lapse of sanity, I agreed to do that. <laughs> Thinking, oh, this won't be a big deal, this piece of cake. I thought, heck, I spent seven years in that group. How hard can it be to go back and be a sponsor? Well, I'm telling you, it was the hardest thing I've ever done in this program was to go back and sponsor an Alateen group because it will make you practice every single aspect of your program, triple amount that you ever had just being a regular member of Al-Anon. Absolutely, you'll practice. You'll you'll get frustrated to the point where you just want to (laughs) quit and take your toys somewhere else, you know, because it's just insane. And then there's there's those nights where where I would sit there and I would say, I'm not going back. I'm tired of hearing this. I am not going back in there. And I would and I would go, and lo and behold, I'd hear one of those kids say something like, you know, I was at school today, and I thought about the serenity prayer, and I would just die right there, just kicking myself for not wanting. What do you mean you don't want to be a part of this, sissy? Good grief. And uh, for several years, was very active in sponsoring that group, and it's probably the, the, the hardest but the most beneficial part of service work I've ever done in this thing. So if you're looking for a challenge, or if you're bored, <laughs> if you're one that sits around and says there's nothing to do, <laughs> get involved with those Alateens, because it's absolutely the most powerful thing in Al-Anon, I think. Uh, it'll reward you triple times. Uh, and, of course, came that time when it was time for me to move on and do other things and allow someone else to have that opportunity to work with those kids. But... Uh, but I still today uh, am an, am an Alateen at heart. I always will be, you know. Um, that's, that's what gave me my foundation in this program is Alateen. And uh, so I get off my Alateen soapbox. But if you're looking for a challenge, go work with those kids. There's nothing else more powerful. Uh, we, you know, our family, again, in a time of healing, we started doing the things that we went back to the basics. We went back to the things that we did when we first came in the program to try and heal from this, from Mike's death. Uh, we're still healing today. Uh, we still uh, find ourselves just totally confused by the whole thing, and at other times we seem to be moving okay with it. You know, holidays are hard. Uh, birthdays are hard. But, but we feel like if we keep his memory alive and talk about him, we're able to move along and function. And, and we do. We do talk about him and we do celebrate, you know, the, the 20 years that, that we had. Um, another chapter of my life began when I graduated from college. Uh, they didn't just get rid of me. I passed. They let me graduate. Dad likes to tell people he finally gave them enough money that they, that they just said, all right, here, go ahead. No, I passed. Uh, very shortly after graduation, I came to my I've been living away from home for four years. There were times, mother, and you're drinking. I, I would tell myself, when I'm 16, 17, I'm out of here. I ain't ever coming back. And here I am, fresh out of college, and can I move back in with y'all? 
because y'all have a whole lot of fun and I want in on it. And they said, sure you can. And so I moved back home with mom and dad so I could be a part of that fun time. And boy, did we have fun. We had a good time. We, we got back into the going to meetings together and going out to eat before a meeting and just making it a whole, whole evening uh, affair. And uh, very shortly after that, I went to my parents and I said, well, it's happened. I said, I have now become self-supporting through my own contributions. <laughs> she was, I got a job. That college degree paid off. I got a job, and I celebrated by taking them out to eat at a restaurant that didn't have a drive-thru. <laughs> and, uh, and I felt like I was, my, that my life was complete. I thought, this is what it's all about. You know, you've, you've hung in there. You've done all these things. And I was enjoying it. I was enjoying being a college graduate and having no ties and kind of footless and fancy free. Uh, and then I, I went to my mother one day, and I said, Mother... I said, you know, do you think there's ever going to be anybody for me? And she looked at me without missing a beat, and she said, Sissy, God ain't through with him yet. Well, a little while after that, <laughs> God got through with him. And uh, and we, Bob and I, had known each other for a long time. In the pro- he was in the program several years. I always knew I'd marry an alcoholic. I always knew it. Now, he'd have to be sober and in Alcoholics Anonymous, but I always knew <laughs> There's one out there with my name on it somewhere. <laughs> and um, and I always had a, I always had a huge crush on him, but he was he was uh, unattainable. He was married. I mean, you you couldn't go there, you know. And he had some some qualities about him that I just wasn't real sure about. He had two kids, <laughs> and I thought, no, don't go there, don't go there. But he got himself straightened up and got divorced, you know. The kids were still with him, but I thought, I can work with this. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> he's going to kill me. But anyway, we started dating, and one thing leads to another. And, and uh, he he asked me to marry him. And, and most fathers will, of course, I accepted. But most fathers, when they find out their little girl's in love and that she's engaged to be married, will pull the young man aside and talk to him about, you know, how are you going to take care of my daughter financially? No. Can you do this? And Dad didn't care about that. He knew how much money Bob made. He was more concerned with, uh, let me see your five-year chip. <laughs> he said, yeah, let's get that five-year chip, and then we'll talk about getting married. <laughs> you know, we, have to be, we, we can't be normal in anything. But, uh, but we, we started planning this wedding, and i got to tell you about this wedding because it was a sight. Uh, we decided to get married in the church that my parents got married in because we figured if it worked for them, 30 years previous, hey, it should work for us. So we decided to get married in this little Baptist church in Hueytown. And then we started trying to figure out, well, who was going to perform the ceremony? Because uh, I didn't go to church. I don't go to church. Uh, And so I didn't really know anybody that, you know, I could ask. And then it occurred to me that uh, there was somebody in the program that that was a man of the cloth and... uh, respected a whole bunch and wanted him to perform this ceremony and it turns out that he's the family counselor that I had way back in family week we'd stayed in touch over the years and he'd seen me grown from this sad little sick child to into a, a more healthy young lady and so I approached Howard one night and I asked him if he would perform that ceremony and he agreed to so it was pretty neat that we had this that we had Howard going to be involved in this because he'd seen our family come all the way through recovery. Uh, at the ceremony, i got to tell you, at the ceremony, we opened up the 
We got married in a Baptist church with a minister wearing a Catholic robe, performing a Methodist ceremony, starting out with serenity prayer. <laughs> we closed that wedding with the Lord's Prayer. And his, and his dad likes to tell it. We did everything but uh, pass the basket and give out chips at that wedding. <laughs> he wishes we'd have passed the basket. We did. It was just like a meeting. We did everything but have a speaker, and and had a ball. And I tell you, you know, people from AA and Al-Anon just outnumbered our family three to one. My own family's running around saying, "Who, who are these people?" <laughs> And I, I couldn't explain it, you know. I couldn't explain it. I had family coming in from out of state that just could not believe uh, the fellowship and the good time, you know, that we had. We had a ball at that wedding. It was like more of a party. And uh, and i got to tell you something else about, you know, being married to an alcoholic. Uh, he does have it hard sometimes. He's got two pretty healthy Al-Anons, you know, living in close proximity to him. Bless his heart. He gets beat up a lot, but Dad and I are okay with that today, so we just <laughs> we move on. The kids are still with us. Couldn't work out a deal on that. <laughs> the kids are, uh, Will is 9, going on 16, and Kale is 12, going on 25. And uh, we, get those, we get those youngins every other weekend, which is entirely not enough. You know, hopefully one day we'll have them all the time. But we're saving a chair in Alcoholics Anonymous for Kale. It's just a matter of her drinking one day. I mean, it's written all over her. And uh, we've got a chair in Al-Anon for Will because it's written all over him. But it's amazing about those two kids because they love coming out to where we live now. I mean, they absolutely, if they if they could say, we want to live with y'all, that's where they'd be. Uh, we all know there's other issues involved, but they absolutely love it. Will loves to go to meetings with his dad. He loves to go to AA meetings with Bob. And, and uh, PI meetings and, and all those service meetings. Because he gets all the attention. He comes home with a lot of chips. <laughs> a lot of chips, which concerns me. And Will, <laughs> Will's favorite thing about these meetings, his favorite thing about these meetings is when he hears the, the members of AA get up and say, Hi, my name is so-and-so, and I'm an alcoholic. And after he's been to a one-hour meeting with Bob, that's all you hear all weekend from Will. Is hi, my name is Will, and I'm an alcoholic. And he'll practice it over and over and over. He'll make my dad turn the TV off so he can say, Papa Bo, you need to hear this. And he'll do it in another tone of voice. <laughs> and he'll carry those chips around just like it's gold. You know, and what that tells me, Bob, is that, you know, the life we're living today is, is having an effect on them. Yeah, and how neat that is. They go to conferences with us. Uh, we took them to one... This past October, uh, I can't remember what state it was in, but anyway, we took them with us, and it was a Halloween-type theme for the weekend, and, that you know, y'all just spoiled them to death. We had a ball. And so that's a blessing in our lives today. Uh, three years ago, we decided we were tired of living in the city. We wanted to get out in the country. The countries were going to move to the country, and we did. And what we found was everybody else was doing it. Why can't we? Everybody else was living this little dream. Why couldn't we do it? And we sat down one night. Bob and I sat down with Mom and Dad. And Mom and Dad were living in a house that was too big for them. They couldn't, they couldn't take care of it. It was too much going on. 
And we were living in a townhouse paying rent, and what we decided to do was pool everything and buy some property and build some houses. And we did. And we moved out to this little town of West Blockton. And we call it the Sober Farm. And uh, everybody knows us, knows the Sober Farm. Um, our answer machine used to say that. You, you've reached the Sober Farm. Please leave your name and number. We get all kind of fun phone calls from that. But uh, And what we have out there is, is a place that mom and dad live up on top of the property, and we kind of are down below within a stone's throw. And we all live there, and we have a blast. Uh, we get, we'll get in one car and go to meetings. We're 34 miles from our home group one way, and it's worth it. It's, it's a lot of fun. You hear nothing out there. We have no neighbors. We have deer, and we have wild animals and, uh, and two beagles that run the place, and um, the alipups. And, we <laughs> and, yes, they've been to meetings, too. <laughs> yeah. But we truly enjoy living out there. You know, you have to drive a little further. You're six miles from the nearest store. Uh, but it's worth it, you know, and it's a place that we can we can uh, grow old at. And, and and that's neat. That's neat to know that mom and dad are settled and they don't they're in a one one story, one level house now. And I can literally, you know, be there to take care of them. Um, and it's neat to to get together a couple times a week and cook, you know and uh, get in the vehicle and go to meetings together and all those things that we do. So we really enjoy living out there. I got to tell you, I got to tell you about my summer before I wind this up because it's probably the thing that's been on my mind for the for the last, what, seven months. Um, and what I want to tell you about this summer, before I tell you about it, because in sharing this, I may forget to tell you the point, and I don't want you to miss the point. But the point of this story is it has absolutely nothing to do with my mom being an alcoholic. It has absolutely nothing to do with the fact that I'm married to an alcoholic. It has everything to do with uh, my, con my contact, my relationship with God today, and just how powerful my relationship with God today is. And it'll give you a little indication on that. Uh, ever since Mike died back in 88, I started having, very shortly after he died, I started having real severe migraine headaches to the point that I almost just couldn't function. I was having them just weekly, all the time. And I started going to a doctor to be treated for these things, and over the next seven to eight years, treated them real successfully. Just almost got them down to nothing. And I was real happy with the progress that I'd made in that treatment. And this past Memorial Day, Memorial Day of 99, I went to the doctor for my checkup, and I told him, I said, Doc, my headaches are changing. I said, I don't know what's going on up there. And for years, when I had a headache, I referred to it as my tumor. Just sick humor, but I always referred to it as my tumor was acting up. And I went in his office that day, and I said, I believe my tumor's acting up. I said, I'm having some sharp pain behind my eye. I said, my vision's coming and going. And I said, things just don't seem right. And he said, well, let's take a picture. So we went over and we had a CAT scan. And he didn't, his, his smile went off of his face and his, his good-natured self kind of went away. And he got real serious. And he said, well, I can't really tell a lot from this CAT scan. He said, let's have an MRI done. And I thought, okay. I wasn't worried or anything. It didn't really concern me. It was just another test. I work in a hospital. I know about tests. I know about the tests that they run, 
So I thought an MRI is just really just a better way of seeing things that are going on. So I went and had the MRI, and I never heard anything back. I thought, well, if anything was wrong, he'd have called me. Turns out, two weeks later, I'm at work in this hospital, and I'm in the elevator. And in the elevator is a doctor friend of mine that's also a member of Alcoholics Anonymous. And he looked at me, and he said, Sissy, what are you doing here? And I said, well, we've all got to work. We've all got to be here. He said, no. He said, uh, you don't need to be walking around. And I said, Bill, what are, you, what are you talking about? And he pulled me out of the elevator into the lobby of this hospital, which is where everybody's walking and coming and going. And he pulled me over to the side, and he said, I got some reports across my desk the other day that had your name on them. And this, this guy's not my doctor, by the way. But he said, I, what I'm seeing on these reports aren't good. He said, I'm seeing an aneurysm on the base of your brain. And he said, you literally don't need to be on your feet right now. He said, it's big. And my knees buckled. My knees absolutely buckled. Somehow we got back up to to my office, and uh, I sat down and kind of let it sink in for just a few minutes. And I, my first thought was, I'm going to die. I'm going to Anybody I had ever known or heard about that had an aneurysm died. And I immediately thought, here I am, 30 years old, with an aneurysm, I'm going to die. And I panicked. I went into an absolute panic mode. Uh, Mom and Dad were out of town. One of the nurses uh, that works on our unit got in touch with them while I somehow put in a call to Bob to try and tell him uh, that I was going to die. I was just absolutely convinced of it in that few minutes. Uh, You know, things started speeding up from that point, kind of snowballing. Come to find out, the uh, x-ray department at the hospital (laughs) sent the reports to the wrong doctor. And my doctor that ordered the test had yet to see him. So he, of course, he didn't call me. He didn't know. He called, when I called him from the office and told him, he said, Sissy, I thought you chickened out and didn't want to have the test run. He said, I've been waiting. He said, I just figured you didn't have it run. He knew even then. It was very shortly after that I that it was pointed out to me, and I believe it wholeheartedly, what better way would I want to hear about that medical condition but from someone in the program of Alcoholics Anonymous or Al-Anon. And God put that guy in that elevator with me that day to give me that news. Two weeks later, whoo, what a two weeks. Two weeks later, well, roughly a week later, we're sitting at the neurosurgeon's office finding out, talking about brain surgery. Brain surgery is now part of our vocabulary because it's going to happen. And of course, Bob and I are nuts. We're just uh, spent a lot of time, a lot of tears, a lot of uncertainty, a lot of fear. Started going to this neurosurgeon who was going to, what I, my instructions were, uh, go see this neurosurgeon. He's the one that needs to do the surgery. And, uh, what came to my mind was, Sissy, this isn't a broken arm. You need a second opinion. So I got on the phone and started finding me somebody else to listen to because I thought, this is a little bit more serious than a broken arm. You better have a couple of people to talk to. So I lined up one. And on the same day, it was me and Bob, my mother, and my sponsor. We go off to the doctors. And the first one we go in and meet and talk to is real technical, real professional, real confident that he can do this thing and that, uh, like Humpty Dumpty, just kind of put me back together again. But something just didn't strike me as right. I just came away from there not feeling real connected with this guy. Felt real confident that he could do it. Just wasn't clicking. Just didn't feel right. 
We left that office, went to this other neurosurgeon's office, and walked in, and Bob and I went back, and uh, we didn't even get to meet with this guy. We met with a guy that taught him everything he knew. I thought it was like meeting like the surgery god here. We can't meet the actual surgeon, but we're going to meet with a guy that taught him everything. And I came away from that day, came away from that office visit, very convinced, very confident that these people were going to do my brain surgery. something about them. And Bob pointed it out to me when we were leaving. He said, did you see the sign in that guy's office? And I said, no. He said, the sign hanging in his waiting room says, this practice believes that the, uh, the spirituality and the power of prayer is as big a healer in your recovery as medication. That meditation and prayer. And so I knew then these were the people that were going to do this surgery. I didn't know just how much until the very next day. I went home that night, and, I t- and, and Bob, of course, he had to get back to work the next day because he was fixing to plan some big time off to be with me. And so uh, my mother had just started a new job, and she said I'd, the same thing. She said, I've got to go in and arrange for some time off to be with you during this surgery. So I looked around the room, and the only person left was Dad. And my dad was struggling with this. He was having a real hard time understanding that this was fixing to happen. I think a lot of it went back to Mike's death. I think a lot of it had to do with uh, the God thing. But he, he wasn't doing real well. And I told him, I said, Dad, you got to go with me. They don't want me to drive. They don't want me to spend two seconds by myself. They're afraid this thing will burst. I said, you got to go with me. you got to meet this guy. He said, okay. So we go off to the doctor the next day. And we go into this room, and there's this uh, real young, I don't know, good-looking guy walks in the room. Looks like he just graduated. And he is like the brain surgery, the brain surgeon in state Alabama. If you want brain surgery, you go to this guy. I'd already found that out. And so he comes walking in the room, and I'm expecting, I don't know, just a lot of ego, you know. And he pulls up a chair, and he, he... gets real close up to me and dad and he, he, he gets my dad's hand and he gets my hand and he says here's the deal he said on a scale of one to ten he said we're looking at about a seven this is not the hardest one we've ever gotten but he said ain't the easiest but we believe we can do it he said um you're healthy he said you've never had surgery never been put to sleep never been in the hospital he said so you've got your health going for you he said i think we're going to be able to do this just fine he said but before we go any further before we schedule any surgery, this is what blew me away. He looked at me and he said, we're going to talk about God. He said, the first thing I need to know from you, sissy, is, is, is your relationship with God. If you don't, if you don't, if you don't. And he said, there's, there's nobody touching you, you. And for the next hour and hour and a half, the three, the three of us had a talk to God and, God and God and God's will for me. And I cannot get that off of that, of that, of that. So that I'm going to die. I'm gonna die. I can't, I can't at all, at all, no, it's gonna, it's gonna get through things, cause I, cause I, cause I, cause I, doctor, I said, I said, I know, I know it's will be for me, for me, is to get, and be, and be the patient, and follow direct, and get, and get well, that's, that's what, that's what wants me to live, that ain't, God got me, that's a surgeon, I had, I'm telling you, I'm, t- I'm telling you, hey, absolutely, 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 there, God, there, God, God was taking me again, even, 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 in the, in the to a surgeon that you've done the prayer mentioned. Believe that your attitude and your, and your spirit is is healer. In the next week, he had brain surgery. We didn't check. We didn't the hospital. Hospital. Used on on morning. 
shaved, they shaved, they shaved every hair, hair, pretty, pretty, and, 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 and went to it, and he, me, from me, from here, here, I had, I was 15, was stable, stable, and he walked in my room, I didn't on Saturday morning, and he said, you've got home, go home, he said, you're not sick at the hospital, we're planning on staying on about a 10 day stay, and he, anybody, 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 come back from like that. It's your attitude. He said, but it's your spirituality. And uh, he says, you got to go home. And so I did. So they checked me out, and I went home. And for the next 14 weeks, had to practice a lot of patience and a lot of tolerance and a lot of going back to the basics because I couldn't do anything. Couldn't drive. <laughs> You know, had responsibilities in my home group and had to allow them to take over doing some of this stuff for me because I wasn't capable. Wasn't capable. And had to go back to that original promise of being the patient and following directions. You know, and once again, AA and Al-Anon stepped right in there and carried us and did what they knew to do. You know, and where I am today is I'm about 80, 85% back to original health. I got a little bit more to go. Uh, I still, when I, after I got home and they started uh, following up with my care, they found out that that little booger did a little nerve damage. But they were able to treat that and, and completely fix it with medication and get rid of that problem. We're now uh, going after the migraine disorder. So we're actually going after and going to just absolutely rid, get rid of the migraine disorder that causes so much pain. Um, as you can see, I don't have to worry about fixing my hair right now because they won't let me you know they still got me on johnson's no more tears shampoo <laughs> and no hairspray and no nothing so i just wash it and go it was like donna when we were leaving today from the airport we had the windows down i said i don't mind that today i like that you know but i'm an absolute miracle i know it without a doubt had one heck of a summer you know uh but i'm living proof that uh god still has plans for me you know um, I am back to uh, full force and doing what I want to do. I have. I was telling Bob tonight, I said I have more energy than I have had probably in eight or nine years, just physical energy. I, mean, I got more stamina. I'm able to do a lot more. I said, but going something like that teaches you a little bit. You learn a lot from something like that. And uh, so I know without a doubt just how powerful uh, – my relationship is with God. And I know that wouldn't be possible without the program of Al-Anon. It just wouldn't. Uh, needless to say, it freaked out the parental unit quite a bit. It freaked out my, my husband aged a little bit during that time. Who wouldn't? Uh, but we all came through that as a family. And we now know today uh, what our priorities are and you know, what's important in our life. And it starts with, you know, good health. Um, my sponsor at home always tells me, Sissy, when you, when you get through talking, it's time to shut up and sit down. And I feel like I have just about said everything I need to say tonight. I was telling one of the ladies before I got up here, I said, uh, she was talking about uh, what I was going to say. I said, I have no idea what I was going to say. I said, I do know that you give your best talk in the shower before you get down here. <laughs> and I said, and I, I was telling Bob as we were leaving the room, I said, boy, I said, if... Uh, if, if God will let me, I said, give me that same talk that I gave in the shower tonight. I said, they're going to get a real good one. <laughs> and I said, but you never know till you get up here. And I said, but that's because it comes from the heart and not from the head. Uh, I do want to tell you that um, 
I want to thank you again for having me out here, for having us out here this weekend. And I want to leave with you, uh, I want to leave with two things. One paragraph out of our Al-Anon literature, Courage to Change. And then I want to, I want to leave with you a short promise. This is from page 28. We just read it not too long ago on January the 28th. But it's one paragraph in there and it, it kind of sums up why I'm still here. It says, I came to Al-Anon for a quick fix for my pain, but I stay because of the consistency, security, and friendship I find each day. Because of my commitment to my own growth, I'm able to handle very difficult situations with a great deal of peace, and the delight in my life continues to exceed my wildest dreams. So that's why I keep coming back. I want to close with a promise that I want to make to you. It's the same promise my dad closes with when he talks, and the only reason I stole it from him is because it's darn good. Um... <laughs> And it's this, uh, I'll promise you that if you'll keep coming back and I keep coming back, somewhere down the road our paths will cross once again. I want to thank you again and God bless you. Thanks.